Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Yeah, I don't know where she went. Sarah? Oh, let me see, maybe she's outside. It's been snowing so much lately. She's been working hard at keeping the front door open. Haven't had so much snow in a while. Happy New Year to us, right? All right. Let's go see if we can find her. Hold on. Sarah? You out here? No, Sarah. All right, well, maybe she's in the museum somewhere. It's tricky to record a podcast introduction by yourself. Make a cup of coffee? Maybe that'll bring her around. No, probably not. She hates the smell of coffee. Tea? No, doesn't. that's not going to work either. Well, how about we'll just do it by my own self? Um, we get to talk about Tony Palumbo in this episode. And he's, as you know, he's retired from being county attorney, which he's held the position since 2011. And he was assistant county attorney from 1979 to 2010. So he's had a long run in Anoka County and prosecuting a lot of difficult child abuse cases, but he's been representing Anoka County in litigation in the state and federal courts this whole time. He's practiced numerous areas on behalf of the county. He's advised the county departments on data practices, real estate matters, general liability, workman's comp issues, labor personnel issues. The list goes on and on and on. Um, If you've ever sat down with Tony one-on-one, you know that he is a kind and caring person who does everything he can to support the nonprofits in Anoka County, especially. Uh, He's done a couple fundraising events for us, and I know he's done a number for others where he's made a meal and people have bought tickets to his meal and the money's been donated back to the charity. Um, He grew up in St. Paul and received his B.A. from St. Thomas and his law degree from William Mitchell College of Law. And, uh, you know, now you get to hear part of my conversation with Tony. Uh, The full conversation will be on the vault for our members there. This is a little snippet. Uh, He has some really great memories of his time in the the office and of the people that he met, uh, some of the changes over his 40-year career. And... I'll let you uh, just listen to Tony and what he has to say. A trigger warning for this episode. Because of the nature of Tony Palumbo's work, there will be discussions of SA and DV. Today is the 14th of December, 2022. Correct. And we're in the county offices on the seventh floor in Tony Palumbo's office with the one and only Tony Palumbo. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon. We're here for the historic ride through what some say started in 1977 and others say started in 79. Well, they're both true. I did start in this office in 1977 when I was still in law school as a law clerk in the juvenile division. Now, when I say started, I replaced somebody who was a permanent employee. So I came in as a permanent employee in 1977, even though I was still in law school. And I worked here for two years doing juvenile prosecutions. And then, excuse me, in 1979, I took the bar. 
was applying for jobs because no one told me. And I came in one day in September of 1979 and there was the oath of office on my desk that I was most excited about because the county attorney at the time, I thought, knew the Supreme Court. And I thought, he must know I passed the bar. And this was before the results came out. I didn't care about the job. I cared about the fact that I was passing the bar. And of course, I did pass the bar and then was uh, made an assistant county attorney. So I did start in 77 in this office but I, as a clerk, but I did start as an attorney, an assistant county attorney in 1979. I'm guessing it's pretty rare to stay in one place for your whole career like that. I did leave for a short time. I took a leave of absence, and uh, I was a business lawyer out in Denver for a couple of months, but that uh, did not work out at all, so I came back here. And uh, the county attorney at the time was very gracious and allowed me to come back. For the sake of context, can we reel back a little bit and talk about like where you were born and a little bit of your sure. childhood and the presumably the burning ember that was always the desire to be a lawyer. You are truly a journalist in this country. <laughs> um, I was born in St. Paul. I am the third of fourth children. Um, my uh, came from working class roots. My father was the uh, head foreman for the city of St. Paul water department. And uh, my mother was a homemaker, pretty typical of the time born in 1952. Um, my, uh, my early course education, I went to Catholic schools in St. Paul, on what's called the west side of St. Paul. So uh, I went there and my first, I guess, I don't know if you call it claim to fame, but when I was 13 years old, a couple of things happened. One, I cut a radio commercial for public safety for WCCO. I was 13 years old, and I happened to be at my grade school just before school started doing something. And the head of the school patrol came by. The name was Winterhalter. And he said, how would you like to do a commercial? I said, me? Sure. So I went down and I uh, cut a commercial. Pretty much saying, you know, school's back in session, watch out, be careful for kids, you know. So all my relatives, I heard them on the radio, you know, I was 13 years old. That was my first media appearance at 13. And then later on in that year, um, I was in eighth grade at St. Matthew's School, and I was the captain of the school patrol then. So I have a badge, a gold badge with my name on it. Well, what happened is you, um, there was some sort of a conference in December of that year and people, all the school patrols throughout the city, both in the, you know, the private schools and the public schools had to vote for a chief of police. So I had people in my school put on a skit that was quite funny. So everybody voted for me. So I got elected chief of police when I was 13 years old for the city of St. Paul. And I had a uh, uh, rode in an, an, a parade in 1964 Mustang convertible with my mother with a little brownie automatic trying to take pictures because my name was on the side and I'm trying to be coy. And, you know. Hi, Mom, you know, kind of thing when you're 13 <laughs> and be this dashing young media star at 13. So 
I think I still have the badge, so that was, I had an uncle that used to call me chief of police all the time, so that was my foray into both the media and into public safety. Not, and into elections. And into elections, that's right. I, that's very true, Rebecca. So, and uh, I went to St. Thomas College, then it was called a college. I went on uh, partial scholarship. And then from there, I started at the University of Minnesota in graduate school in industrial relations. Um, <clears throat> because I was told when I was a senior in college by one of my professors uh, that I, he didn't think I'd be a good lawyer. So, and he was an old gentleman and he based that on one test that I took uh, and I didn't respect him too well. So I decided, hmm, this old gentleman doesn't think I'd be a lawyer. I was thinking of being a lawyer. So I stayed out for a year, went to graduate school, and then said, if I don't try, I'll have regret. And the one thing you can never regret, or you can never erase, is regret. So I thought, I'll apply and get into law school. I got in, so my second year of grad school was my first year of law school. So I was at grad school during the day at the University of Minnesota, and then at night I was at William Mitchell. So it was a little tight, and that second year, as part of my grad school, I took labor law, so I was actually in the University of Minnesota Law School during the day, and at William Mitchell Law School at night, so I was in two law schools at the same time. And interesting, one of the classes I was with turned out to be later Justice Alan Page. Oh, fun. He was still playing for the Minnesota Vikings at that time, but um, he was uh, in law school, so I used to sit next to him in classes. So. Hmm. Introduction. So uh, then when I was in uh, law school, I had a friend of mine that worked out here uh, in the, as a clerk in the family law section. And she said, there's an opening in the juvenile, why don't you come out? And of course, being from St. Paul, thinking Anoka, you know, it's not the edge of the earth, but you can't see it from here, right? You so almost fall off. I did. I drove out here, and when I got off Highway 10 onto Main Street, there were all cornfields. Mm -hmm. The only thing was here was Menards, all the way to a federal cartridge. And um, so I interviewed and got the job. Uh, and the first question everyone asked is, well, who do you know? I don't know anybody here. How did you get the job? Anoka County in those days was heavily favored with people that knew each other. Mm -hmm. And I was not one of those. So I was very fortunate that I got into this office. So um, that's kind of my background of how I wound up here. So my third year and my fourth year in law school, I was doing juvenile prosecutions. Um, and then when I passed the bar, uh, I was still in the juvenile division, but at that time we had just started a program for child, child abuse prosecutions. So I was tasked with starting the program for child abuse prosecutions. So I did that for a couple of years and put that together with social workers and correctional officers and police officers and how we were gonna do it. So it was a very rewarding time. How long did you feel like a fish out of water? Because I didn't know anybody? Mm -hmm. um, not very long. I knew I could hold my own. I knew what I was worth. I knew I had to learn a lot here. Uh, but I kept my ears open and my mouth shut. And that's, of course, how we can learn the best, don't we? Mm -hmm. Agreed. So um, I uh, was fortunate enough that I got along with many of my colleagues, some of the lawyers, because at that point in time, they were all pretty young lawyers in this office. Um, the county attorney at the time, probably was in his early 60s, Robert W. Johnson, 
but the rest of us were anywhere from, you know, 25 to 35. Hmm. So it was really quite a young office. That surprises me. And what was real interesting about that, Rebecca, is um, you got things thrown at you. I had a horrible rape case nine months after I passed the bar. Something would be very leery of giving a young associate now something so serious. But I took the case and won the case. Because um, so you didn't know you couldn't. I knew I could. Mm -hmm. I mean, exactly. I knew I could try the case. It was my first jury trial. Yeah. And the social worker came to me the night before and said, don't forget, if you lose this case, this girl is going to go to pieces. You understand that? Thanks for the pressure. <laughs> so I went in and tried the case. I tried it in front of an old judge by the name of Robert Gillespie, who had been retired and was a legend in this district. And uh, it was one of his last trials. But I tried the case in front of him. And it was a good experience. I had probably done 50 juvenile trials by the time I got out of law school. So I knew how to try cases. Now, I hadn't tried a jury trial before, but I knew how to try court trials, those that are just in front of a judge. So I knew I had the skills. The question is, could I convince 12 people of something that had occurred based on a young girl's very tearful story about how her mother's boyfriend came home and had her, raped her one night horribly to the point where she needed medical attention. So it was a tough case. How do you manage to keep every case a human, to keep them an individual in your mind? That is a very, very good question. When I first started, the county attorney at the time would have an annual meeting and would gather us all, and he would give us his philosophies. And I remember one philosophy very distinctly. He said, every time you open that file that is a part of someone's life, whether it is a big part or a small part, don't ever forget that is part of someone's life. And to this day, Rebecca, I, in fact, I just said it this morning at a Rotary speech, you know, that's the lesson I give the people here. When we still have annual meetings, I tell them that. Don't forget, you are handling people's lives, whether it's a big part or a small part. It's, it's their lives, and treat it with that respect. So you have to remember, there are um, real people and get really hurt. And we generally deal with people at some of the roughest times in their life, so remember that. We may not remember everything about them, but we will give them our full attention that they deserve. The toughest part of my job is talking to the families of murder victims. Because the first question they ask is, why did he do it, or why did she do it? I don't have an answer. I can't unmake it. All I can do is say, I am so sorry it happened, and I want to be here with you. Justice is a fluid concept, but we will do something that addresses the huge amount of hurt, sometimes hatred, that you, the families, feel. And to know full well that that person will not be drawing a free breath for a long time, even though your loved one will never draw one again. And that's very, very difficult, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's part of the job. How have you grown with the changing attitude of society about domestic abuse 
in the last 40 years? Another very good question. When I first started, um, there wasn't such a thing as domestic abuse. Right. It was, quote unquote, a family matter. Same thing with uh, child abuse. That's, you know, that's a family matter. Let's not get into that. Um, I took over the child abuse assignment and through prosecution and through public education and a lot of public speaking, I, I felt that at least telling people, you know, this is really what's going on and real people are getting hurt and this really makes a difference to us all. It's interesting how wide the umbrella of domestic abuse has come then. We have in Anoka County, um, and it was started under my predecessor, they started getting um, grant money. It's called the Lethality Assessment Protocol. Have you heard of this? Vaguely. LAP. What it is, is when someone calls in on a domestic situation, generally it's, it's a woman being beaten up, but not all the time. Um, but the, when the police respond, two police separate the offender and the victim, and they ask the victim a series of questions, 13 questions. For example, is there a gun in the house? Um, you know, have you been beaten before? Is there cruelty to animals? Is there forced sex? There's 13 questions. And if the victim responds affirmatively to a majority of those, they are screened in as high risk. And what happens is the officer then hands the phone, cell phone, to the victim and says, here's the number for Alexandra House. We can provide you safety for you and your children immediately. Um, and about 66% of the calls, screening is high risk. And uh, on the legal side then, that's on the police side, you know, the law and order mm -hmm. uh, on our side of it is um, we have a program where we get these people in and they screen, both, you know, the man and the woman come in and if they screen right, we can get them into a counseling situation. And studies have shown if you get in counseling right away, you can reduce the likelihood of recidivism. And not only that, what used to take anywhere from 11 to 15 months takes an average of 59 days. So we move them through the process, we get them into a counseling situation, and not only do we address their problems, we also show the children this is not normal. Mm -hmm. So we give them an education. So I'm proud to say when I first started, we probably had six homicides, five of which were domestic. And since then, we've had very few. And I really totally believe it's because of this lethality assessment protocol. Every officer in Anoka County is trained in this, and it has made a huge difference in domestic violence. And that's one of those things I, I guess as I leave office, I'm very proud. I didn't start it, but I certainly helped it along by getting grants and uh, having people in this office dedicated to working with it. It isn't just me, I mean, it's the judges, we have probation mm -hmm. officers. We have social workers, we have people that work collaboratively together to make sure that this problem in society is addressed as quickly as we can. And it's become a model. Just a couple of weeks ago, we did a Zoom call with the Honolulu Police Department. They had heard about it and they want to know, nice. how can we do it? I know you've said in the past that it's your job to prosecute the bad guy and it's not the victim's choice. Right. How do you balance out what some might say is taking control away from the victim in that situation? Very good point. Um, you know, in the old days, when the, you charged out a case, it was a crime against the peace and dignity of the citizens of the state of Minnesota. That's the way they used to phrase it. And when you think about it, it certainly is. 
It is a crime against the peace that we should all enjoy and against the dignity of that individual victim. I don't care what crime it is, it still is. So when people are placed in a situation where they have been victimized and their thoughts are all over the place, to be honest, I have found I can relieve them of the responsibility for, I, I guess, the punishment of someone by saying, I will listen to you, but it is ultimately my decision. But I certainly will listen to you. But especially in many of the domestic violence cases and the child abuse cases, sometimes they don't want that person to go out in prison. They just want it to stop. So they can reconcile the fact that I'm making the decision, not them. So in years to come, I can say I couldn't do it. So I take the responsibility for what's going on um, from their shoulders in such a way that they retain their dignity about having it, but it is certainly a crime against all of us. To me, I don't have any problem doing that, and I find majority of victims uh, are comfortable with that because they don't want the responsibility. Hmm of making a decision about someone else's life. Most jurors don't like that either, and it's very difficult. We make decisions about cases that people um, are not always happy with, and we get complaints about that. That's Every prosecutor has faced that same thing. But the decision we make is based on the law, based on the probability of getting a conviction, based on sometimes the offender. Um, and you have to balance all of those, Rebecca. It's not an easy job. It seems like 40 years of doing this hasn't chipped away at your softer side. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have the luxury now that I'm older of being repulsed by what I see. When you were and this is wearing a, a younger man's clothes. You treat it like an emergency room doctor. Okay, what do I need? What do I got to get done? How am I going to handle this? You know, you triage situation. You make sure you get the victim help. You look at the evidence, etc. As I've gotten older, one of the toughest parts of my job as county attorney, Rebecca, is I read every criminal complaint. Now, we issue close to... 2,100 criminal complaints a year, felony criminal complaints. So we get almost 2,500 referrals. So 400 of those cases we don't charge, 2,100 we do. And that's how I start my day every day, is reading how people hurt other people. And some days it's very difficult. And like I say, as you get older, you know, uh, the comedians say, you know, as men get older, they get more moist. <laughs> mm. um, and it is true. Um, so I have, and I'm not even on the front lines, you know, the staff here is on the front lines. But I do have, uh, I guess at this point, the luxury, that's a funny word for it, but the luxury of being repulsed by what I have read. You know, there's there are certain cases that stick out, you know, and I see a lot of cruelty here. You know, um, and after a while, um, it reaches a point where, okay, I have to let other people make decisions about this. Because I just, you know, the emotional cash register just has so many dollars in it, and after a while, 
When you're out of dollars, you're closed for business. And that's kind of what happens. That's why I will not miss that part of my job at all. So that's tough. Where, where do you get the money to open up the till the next day? You look for the good. Um, when you see the evil, you're repulsed by it. But you enjoy the good a lot more, trust me. Over the 40 years, what really stands out to you as, not the biggest change, but you know, the, the, overall, the overall curve of change? The things that have changed is certainly, I would say, the professionalism of the law enforcement. When I first started, it was the biggest man on the block was the cop, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't have a lot of training, but uh, knew how to keep order, much like a bouncer, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Uh, and through the 45 years that I've been here, I have seen just an absolute growth in the professionalism. The educational, uh, not only it isn't just big men, uh, some of the best police officers are uh, small women <laughs> because they tend to know how to handle a situation in different ways. Sure. Um, and seeing other parts of our community that traditionally have been excluded um, is an absolute positive that I think, you know, people, um, you know, minority groups, uh, we live in a multicultural society. Let's have multicultural contributions to how we're going to make decisions about that society. It will move us forward mm -hmm. in a way that is less troublesome. So I certainly encourage that. I really do, and I have seen that growth throughout. It's interesting how your office is law-based, but it really is a managerial of a corporation. It is. Yeah, we... Um, we, of course, are legal counsel. If Anoka County were a corporation, we would be the 50th largest corporation in the state of Minnesota. So we have over 2,000 employees. Uh, we have a civil division here in this office that has to manage the civil affairs of this large corporation called Anoka County. Um, and that's only a part of it. What about that responsibility and that, that daily routine will you miss? The people. I will miss the people. I will miss the professionalism. I always say you're a professional if you're harder on yourself than ever I could be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I tell my people here, my job is to give you the tools to do your job. Did you have much time overlapping with your immediate predecessor? None. The transition that I made from being an assistant to the county attorney um, was based on my experience here for 33 years before I became county attorney. Um, and um, he certainly had his um, uh, his way of doing things. We all bring it, mm -hmm. our personalities to the job. I mm -hmm. brought a little different personality. But uh, he was a very well-respected county attorney, as was his father before him. And I certainly had respect for them for what they have done for this county. What sort of cliff notes are you going to leave in the drawer so that it's found? I'm going to leave a letter like one <laughs> president does for the other. I, I don't know that I'll do that, but I am in transition with my successor who ran against me 12 years ago and uh, was successful this time. I congratulated him. He earned it. Um, I do uh, feel that it's in the best interest of the citizens of Anoka County 
that the transition be um, smooth and that uh, issues that he will need to face, he should be made aware of um, with all facets. And I've tried to do that. I've had several discussions with him. And um, I think it's really, really important. This job is much greater than the personalities of the people that occupy it. And uh, my responsibility is to 365,000 people out there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's who my first responsibility is to. Um, and uh, helping the next person come along to be able to address the problems in the way that he will think is appropriate, but at least understand the problems uh, and know what they are. Would your grandmother have ever believed you would take this silent road? Would my grandmother? Um, probably not. Um, um, no, they probably wouldn't. They, they wouldn't have. They couldn't fathom that I would be sitting here with you today as an elected county, first of all, as an educated person, as a lawyer, as an elected official, and as the county attorney. That was so far beyond their immigrant thoughts that um, I would have surprised them. Um, even my own mother, after I got elected, God bless her, her friends would ask her, so your son, she go, you know, he's some big shot in Oka County, I don't know what he does. <laughs> Say, mother, I got elected county, whatever. <laughs> God bless you, mother. <laughs> That's true. She's some big shot up there. I don't know what he does. It's always bringing you down to earth, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, they, I love my mother dearly, and I just would shake my head. But Have we missed anything? Have we missed anything? Um, I'd be uh, disappointed if you said we hadn't. <laughs> no, we, um, you know, there's some highlights, um, and they have to do with people. I have had contact with victims um, throughout the years. I have become their father figure. Uh, there was one I met in 1986 where she had been severely abused by her stepfather and her mother knew what was going on. And um, any rate, I intervened, well, I, I became the prosecutor in a case when she was 17 years old. And, I think her grandparents and I were the only ones that went to her high school graduation. Oh, wow. And so I have remained friends with her. I see her a couple of times a year, but I, she's now 54, 55 years old. Um, and the one that was the most poignant, I can remember, is I charged a guy with actually raping his 16-year-old daughter. And she was in a uh, um, locked ward of us, of uh, a hospital, when I had to interview her for um, the trial, and she completely fell apart. I wound up under the table with her. Uh, I wound up, the father wound up committing. Uh, I had to take a kind of plea that you don't like to, where he says, I'm not gonna contest the charges. So I went back and talked to her and tell her, you don't have to, to you know, testify against your father. Well, she hugged me and <laughs> cried mm. all down the front of my shirt. Well, I thought that was payday. Yeah. You know, I was the lowest paid schmuck in the office, I think, but, yeah. and I was payday. Well, fast forward. I hadn't seen her for many years. And I get a call. This was just a few years ago. I get a call. Can you come to the front desk? Okay, I walk up, and there she is. She's 59 years old. She's, she said, 
and she had some limited abilities. And she was now a grandmother of five. Oh, wow. And she said, Tony, I just want you to know, my father confessed to me on his deathbed. <laughs> and she said, yeah, finally, he did. And my mother said, don't you tell anybody. <laughs> and she said, you know, Tony, I just want to make connection with you before my hair falls out because I'm taking chemo. Oh, no. So, um, so, and by the way, I'm her lawyer now, so she has, <laughs> she has a landlord dispute. Tony! <laughs> but that's okay. So when you, you make a difference in people's lives, um, and I'm not bragging, that's just, no, you know, just I was saying in a file. We all make a difference in people's lives in some way. But it goes back to what I told you about, you know, maybe a big part, maybe a small part. But it definitely is a part of somebody's life um, every time you open that file. And that's the importance of this office. We do make a difference in people's lives. We don't brag about it. We try and do the best we can for them. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. But we don't quit trying. And that's the ded dedication that I see in every one of these people. So those that are coming up, that's the same as it was 45 years ago. And that, to me, is heartening to see that same mindset, Rebecca, that people want to do the best job they can and they want to do it to serve the people in that file. Well, on behalf of us at the History Center, for sure, you've been a wonderful advocate and friend to us. Thank you. We appreciate what you've done for us and for the community and uh, especially for taking time to sit down with us. And oh, this is enjoyable. Well, it's been Very wonderful. enjoyable. Thank you for the opportunity to do it. Kind of, you've picked my private thoughts, <laughs> and you've gotten some. And as you can see, there's some emotion that gets brought up. Yeah. You know, um, I'm an old man, I'm moist, you know. And the best kind. The best kind. Um, and through the years, I've met a lot of good people. Met some people that weren't quite as good but I learned from all of them. I, I hope whoever succeeds me um, will understand the gravity of the responsibility to um, society that we hold. Now, are we better or are we worse than anybody else? No, we're just another part of it. And uh, how this office interacts with the community and how we can help other parts of the community um, to do the best job they can is something that I've always striven for and doing what we can for people um, at the, some of the worst times of their life. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully um, what was a dark day can have some light when we're done here. That's all we can hope for, isn't it? Okay. Thanks again, Tony. Okay, so Rebecca, very this has been... Appreciate it. Are you kidding? I enjoyed this tremendously. Thank <laughs> you for the opportunity. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, I'm Lydia Podoff, an adult services librarian at Anoka County Library, and this is your Library Minute. First up, we have The Law Book by Peter Crisp. The law book offers an engaging and accessible overview of legal history across the world all the way into the 21st century with copyright in the digital age, gay marriage, and the right to be forgotten. Packed with inspirational quotations, 
eye-catching infographics, and mind maps. It offers essential reading for anyone with a professional or personal interest in law, the legal system, or history and social change. Lincoln's Greatest Case, The River, The Bridge, and the Making of America by Brian McGinty. The untold story of how one sensational trial propelled a self-taught lawyer and a future president into the national spotlight. McGinty brilliantly animates this legal cauldron of the late 1850s, which turned out to be the most consequential trial in Lincoln's nearly quarter century as a lawyer. Along the way, the tall prairie lawyer's consummate legal skills and instincts are also brought to vivid life. Lincoln's greatest case is legal history on a grand scale and an essential first act to a pivotal Lincoln drama we, we did not know was there. Next, we have In Case You Get Hit by a Bus, How to Organize Your Life Now for When You're Not Around Later by Abby Schneiderman. This book is a step-by-step -step program for getting your life in order so you're prepared for the unexpected. The expert at Everplans, a leading company in digital life planning, make it possible in this essential and easy to follow book. Breaking the task down into three levels. First, the most urgent, like granting access to passwords. Second, the technical, like creating a manual for the systems in your home. And finally, the nostalgic, assembling a living memory. This clear step-by-step -step program not only removes the anxiety and stress from getting your life in order, it's actually liberating. Next, we have For the Record, 150 Years of Law and Lawyers in Minnesota, an illustrated history by the Minnesota Bar Association. This history of law in Minnesota, presented by the Minnesota State Bar Association, includes sections such as origins, training, courts, service, controversy, leaders, and trends. Happy reading! Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Oh, Rebecca, I'm here, I'm here, I'm sorry I missed you. I was here at the museum shoveling out the front door. The city does an excellent job keeping our sidewalk clear, but can't go all the way up to the front door and they don't you know make sure that our garbage corral is is clear so I had to get the shovel out and put in some hard work I enjoyed listening to the episode with you and Tony his office is was just across the street from us so it was a short commute that day I really enjoyed listening to it but it was I admit, very difficult to try to edit down these 72 minutes into a little under 30 for this episode. That's a tough job, and it does not get any easier with practice. I hope everybody out there had a wonderful end to 2022 and is uh, ringing in 2023 with gusto. May all of the roads be plowed and salted in front of you. That is my wish for you for, for this month. And I'm nearly done out here. Just a few more shovelfuls. It's never ending. Have a wonderful day. Bye everybody. If you have a question, 
Want to visit our show notes page for each episode or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.